Episode 301 of Monster Kid Radio, the first episode of the podcast in 2017 with the song Black Cat. It's from the band Odie Cologne. They're a surf band out of St. Petersburg, Russia. The album is called Dracula's Dreams, and you can find it at odicolone.bandcamp.com. You spell the name of the band O-D-I-C-O-L-O-N. They gave us permission to play this song at the beginning and the end of this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here in the new year. Now, I wanted to do something a little bit different on Monster Kid Radio in 2017. I wouldn't call it a resolution, but I want to bring in some new voices. I want to bring some new perspectives and some new topics to the podcast. And I thought I'd start with an interview with a man by the name of David Schechter. You might not know the name, although you you should. I mean, he's a great guy. But you have heard his work, or at least you've heard the music that's inspired some of his work. He is the man behind Monstrous Movie Music, which is a label that puts out soundtrack albums for so many of these classic monster movies that we love so much. Monstrous Movie Music probably has the best Creature from the Black Lagoon soundtrack album. You can get music from She-Demons, Destination Moon, Rocket Ship XM, It's the Terror from Beyond Space. So many great albums with so much great music. You can get it from him at mmmrecordings.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Check that out over on our website when you're done listening to this interview with David Schechter. David's also a Rondo Award winner. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. I'm excited for that, so we're going to get to that. And then I'm going to tell you about an upcoming Monster Kid Radio crash. That's all happening right after this. Scraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Sonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. 
can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. Huh, that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh, we'll do. Let's see, that's at OrphanEntertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Space is a picture that you'll long remember for its blending of science and fiction, for its eerie terror, and for its story of an invasion from another planet that's almost beyond imagining. I tell you, from its size and its appearance, this thing came from outer space. I even have reason to believe that there's some form of life in it. What do you want? What are you doing? Let me see you as you really are. Welcome to the show, somebody that I've wanted to have on Monster Kid Radio from pretty much the very beginning of me launching the show over 300 episodes ago. And that's because I've seen him and heard him on various DVD documentaries, and he's responsible for quite a few CDs in my music collection. I'd like to welcome David Schechter to Monster Kid Radio. David, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. I mentioned the the CDs, and I'd be remiss if we don't talk about that. But before we talk about that, the DVDs, the books, your Rondo Hatton Award win last year, so fellow Rondo Hatton Award winner, there's something that we do on Monster Kid Radio to introduce new guests to the audience. We have a game that we play. 
It's called the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Now, each one of these cards has a yes or no, this or that style question, all relating to classic monster movies. And there's no wrong answer, and I'd like to play a round of the Classic Five with you, David. Thank you for telling me there's no wrong answer. <laughs> All right. So, I'm, sure, I'm sure if anyone could supply one, it would be me. Ah, uh, no, nah, this will be great. I'm looking forward to it, and I've got the cards shuffled here. Here we go. Card question number one. Which do you prefer better, the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits? I think I failed the test. Oh, no! I, I guess I would say Twilight Zone. Okay, okay. Can I can I ex- expand? Oh, please, please. In terms of sheer quantity, because, you know, they both had hit and miss episodes, but I think if, if you add up the Twilight Zone good episodes, you got more than Outer Limits, but I love Outer Limits, too. Well, Twilight Zone is pretty iconic. It's it's hard to get away from. I mean, everybody knows what the Twilight Zone is. You know, it's, it's that entrenched in media and pop culture. Yeah. And, and, and with good reason. Rod Sterling and the other writers and creators were geniuses. But if you want a monster, you know... Twilight Zone sometimes disappoints. True. Outer Limits did have more of the, the monster effect. Okay, so was that all five questions? No, no, I- no. We, we got four more, man. You're not getting off that easy. Card number two. Rex Reason or Rhodes Reason? Well, it's got to be Rex because he was a friend. And yeah, yeah. And uh, I never met Rhodes, but uh, Rex talked about him all the time. They, were, they like, were connected, you know, because they were twins. And and also, you know, you look at the, the, the movies that Rhodes were, was in, they're not quite as classic as the ones Rex was in. But the, the thing I loved about Rex is he had the absolute deepest voice in Hollywood. And even in his 80s, you know, whatever, I get a phone call once in a while, like I hadn't heard from in a, a year or something like that. And I'd he- hear this voice. So, David, do you know who this is? And I, I have no idea, Rex. Who could it possibly be? <laughs> Wow. He was a sweetheart and a, a gentle guy and incredibly handsome right up to the end. I mean, I did a signing with him and uh, some other actresses who knew him from 50, 60 years ago, and their hearts got all fluttery when they saw him even after all these years. Oh, wow. Tall and rugged and, you know, that voice. Oh, my God. Wouldn't wouldn't it be great to look and sound like that for like two minutes out of my life? <laughs> I'm a podcaster. I'd settle for the voice. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Card number three. Who is your favorite mad scientist? Well, it's got to be Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. There, there's no other answer for me. And I'm going to go see his daughter tonight, which is a coincidence. Every, every question you ask, I have some stupid story. No, that's great. That's what this whole thing is about. So this yeah. whole, you know, letting listeners know a little bit more about you. We get to know each other, the whole thing. Sarah is adorable. I've had a chance to talk with her a few times, and she's just a sweetheart. Yeah, she, she is. We have a mutual friend, and he does a Christmas party every year down in Oceanside, which is about Two hours away if the traffic is good, this time of the year, about four hours. And Sarah's usually there. And uh, sometimes Bela Jr. is there, but usually Ron Chaney is there, too. And, you know, and nobody talks about monsters. They just hang around the bar and laugh a lot. So that's kind of nice. Oh, man, that just sounds like a monster kid's dream. Just a you know, Christmas party with the, with the sons and daughters of, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. The sound of drunken monsters. It's like nothing else. <laughs> All right, card number four. In your opinion, what classic monster movie needs a prequel? The Giant Claw. Wow. Because it just enters our solar system fully grown and angry as hell. And I want to hear about the chick years. You know? <laughs> because you know, it, it was gonna have babies and we would have found out about that. It's kinda like, you know, Rodan, where 
we kind of have a, a prequel to Rodan sort of with the, you know, the little whatever they are, pteranodons, I don't know, guys in pteranodon suits coming out of the eggs and eating those little bugs and everything. So we kind of get a sense of their upbringing. We understand their personalities, I believe. But I think the giant claw needs something. And am I the first person who answered the question that way? I think this is the first time we've talked about the giant claw this long on Monster Kid Radio. It's, it's something that we don't get talked about very often at all. I, I personally enjoy the movie. I mean, warts and all. I enjoy it. So, huh. Now and I want to go back and watch it again. I love how you said warts and all because the, the bird does have warts. Well, true. <laughs> all right. So final question, and I'm going to admit to stacking the deck on this one. Okay. I've asked this card question of a number of people, and they're always like, who? But I thought you, with your background, you could address Herman Stein or Ronald Stein. Oh, goodness. Uh, there's a no-brainer there, and it's Herman Stein. Herman was my best friend for about 12 years. And I didn't know Ronald, but I represented his widow in music uh, business for, for a while. But Herman was probably the greatest film composer that nobody ever heard of. He was uh, entirely self-taught. You know, he studied music scores, classical music scores from the library when he was a teenager. He was arranging for Count Basie when he was 16. He was just just in his own universe incredibly gifted. My favorite story is when he came out to Hollywood from Philadelphia and he wanted to study film music. So we went to Mario Castelnuovo Tudesco, very famous Spanish composer who taught all the greats. I mean, he taught Jerry Goldsmith. He taught just pretty much everybody. And uh, he did a number of scores himself. His One of his most famous, well, he did And Then There Were None, which is a great score. And also um, Return of the Vampire, 1943, Columbia. Great score for that. But the first day that he went to uh, see Mario, Mario asked him to write a theme and then do, I think it was eight or nine variations of it, different styles of the same little melody. Well, Herman came in the next day, and I believe he had 38. And Mario said to him, I have nothing to teach you. And they became lifelong friends. Wow. And Herman was so brilliant. And I'm not saying this because you know, the reason he became a friend was I sought him out because, you know, even though I w was not musicologically anywhere close to him at all, my God, I'm not musicologically close to anybody, but I could recognize something in his music that just told me, wow, this guy is a composer. He really was. Ronald Stein he was kind of workmanlike, you know, you can hear stumbles in his stuff. The orchestration isn't always the way you would want it to be. You know, he was good, but I think the films had a lot to do with the appeal. Herman's music was just in a different league in terms of the brilliance behind it. Can I tell you one more quick Herman Stein story? Please do. One day I was doing research on something and I asked Herman if he remembered a cue from a from some Western that he wrote back, I, I think 1954, it might've been Ride Clear of Diablo or something like that. And I said, Herman, do you remember this cue where there's this, you know, horses coming in to a saloon and there's a bad guy standing down the, I'm making all this up, but you know, it's the kind of thing I'm setting up a thing. I said, by any chance, do you, do you have the music for that? And he said, you know, oh, what, what picture was that for? I said, well, Ride Clear of Diablo. And he said, was this it? So he sits down at his piano and he plays the entire piece of music from beginning to end as if it's orchestrated. You know, he's playing it with flourishes and he's playing all the parts of the orchestra flawlessly. He gets to the end of the piece. It's like two and a half minutes long. 
I said, Herman, was was the music on the piano? He said, no, no, I just did it from memory. I said, Herman, when's the last time you saw or heard that music? He said, well, I never did. I wrote it and I never saw the movie or anything. Just everything was in his brain like that. Wow. And we're talking thousands of pieces of music he could have played back the same way. And again, we're not talking simple piano, you know, like chopsticks. We're talking fully fleshed out, orchestrated my jaw just dropped. God, what a what a mind he had. Unfortunately, as brilliant as his mind was, he had one of these combative personalities. Mm. And that kind of fought against him. I think if he had played the games more, he would be a very, very, very famous composer. But he was his own worst enemy at times. Anyway, I'm not shutting up, so I'll shut up. No, no, this is fascinating. I don't I love film scores. I'm a film score collector. I love the music from a lot of these classic films, not just the genre films, but that era, you know, the forties, the fifties. I love Hollywood music from that era. And I don't get to talk about it very much with a lot of people because I tend to geek out a little bit about this kind of thing and I dominate the conversation. So here I am just you know, just, just sitting at your feet hearing the story. It's amazing. And you know, you said you don't think he, he might have been more well known. I he's just well known as far as I'm concerned. You know, his he dominates his music dominates the kind of music that I listen to. The thing was Ronald Stein got credit for his pictures. So he's better known in terms of people going, Oh, I've seen that name on the title before. Right. And, um, you know, Herman, because he worked for Universal, uh, number one, they didn't like to give credits. Number two, they reused music. And number three, they used multiple composers. So you saw Joseph Gershenson's name on there a lot. So Herman barely got credit. Maybe he got credited 10 times in his career, uh, even though he contributed music to, you know, like 150 films or whatever. So people like you and me know him probably going back to that Dick Jacobs album, which mentioned his name, the one that came out in 1959 or whatever. Mm -hmm. If that album hadn't come out, I don't know if we would know his name. I think that was the first time that I I really became aware of him and his work because you're right. I mean, I've been watching these movies for years and Universal in particular would reuse stuff, throw the stuff into the library, it would turn up later. And it's just unfortunate that he didn't get the credit, I feel like, on a wider level. I love Ronald Stein music, too. I, I really do. But Herman Stein, that universal feel, I, I can't get from anybody other than him when it comes to the 50s monster movies. And his name, you know, isn't on any of the 50s monster movies at all. It's a so shame. I think we all got it from that Dick Jacobs album. That's how I knew about him. And I'll tell you how much I like his music is after he died, I bought the rights to his catalog. And it cost a lot of money, but my wife and I wanted to do that. We wanted to make sure Herman's music lived on. So I own the copyrights to the music that he owned. So if you, if you go hum the creature theme, you know, if you go bump, 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 I could charge you a royalty fee. <laughs> Man. And I hear that all the time. Well, creature is my favorite film. And so I hear that stinger. I hear that, and that I hear universal use it all over the place. I hear it in King Kong versus Godzilla. I hear it everywhere. And just, I, I don't know why I haven't done a ringtone or something. I should do that. You know, oh, that sounds great. I'm going to do that. <laughs> you, you got to license the rights from me. Oh, well, I'll, I'll just do it and then I'll give it to you. Know, yeah, we'll, you'll just yeah, yeah, you'll just do it and not tell me. Well, again, you know, no, no, I will tell you because I've got so many of your CDs in my collection, and, and, and that's something I wanted to talk about was monstrous movie music. Man, you are doing Godzilla's work with these CDs. <laughs> the music that you've made available to the public—it's just amazing. What, what started monstrous movie music for you? What started it was. 
my wife and I went to a concert at the Hollywood Bowl where Henry Mancini was conducting. And we knew Henry just socially. We would run into him and he was very nice. Oh, and I, I remember I was going to do an, I was going to interview him before the concert. So he was really nice because while he's studying the scores behind the stage, that's when he wanted to see me. So I interviewed him for about a half an hour while he's studying the music there. And he had the scores for Creature. He was doing a suite for about six minutes from uh, the first Creature movie featuring some of his cues. And when we listened to the concert, that I was sitting out in the Hollywood Bowl under the starry sky, and he was playing his usual you know, pop stuff, doing the Pink Panther, the Baby Elephant Walk from Atari, things that people are used to and they want to hear. And then he did this purely dramatic music. You know, there, It wasn't anything you could hum along to. And listening to their creature music in that context, it was like, wow, this is really, really, it, it hit you at a this, not even a subliminal level, it just whacked you at times. And I think it just kind of gestated for a while. And we had a lot of friends who were soundtrack producers and worked in film music. And just one day, I decided I wanted to see if maybe we could do an album that would kind of capture that. So that that's how it began. And that was the first thing, was hearing the concert. And I think it was maybe a year later, uh, a friend of ours ran the music library at Warner Brothers. And one day when we went in there, I was walking around back in the library looking at all these archival scores. And I looked on the wall and on the spine of one of the scores, it said Beast 20,000 Fathoms. And then it had them and Black Scorpion. I went, holy crow. I had no idea this stuff existed in written form. So I took the stuff out and looked at it and you know, showed it to my wife and said, can you do something with this stuff? Because it was shorthand scores. And even though we ended up getting some full scores, this is like abbreviated versions of the music where you don't hear what every instrument plays. You just kind of get a sense of groups of the orchestra. What does the brass play? What do the woodwinds play? And then you have to interpret it into the way the original orchestrator did it. So it sounds like it did in the movie and not like some terrible version of it. So the realization that this music existed in some form, that was kind of like the real Kickstarter. Well, let me see what else is out there. And that's when I started looking around and discovering Herman Stein's music and Irving Gertz's music and Hans Salter's music and all that stuff. You mentioned The Black Scorpion, and that, again, is, is right up there at the top of my list. It's one of my favorite films. Have you done anything with the music from The Black Scorpion? Is it available anywhere that you know of? The recordings don't exist. The scores do exist. I think I have the, the first page one. Somebody gave it to me, the original, the, the main title from that, which is kind of neat. But but the shorthand scores do exist at Warner Brothers. It is possible that the full scores exist. I love that movie. The cave scene with all those little creepy crawly stuff. You know, you see that and you think of that's the Kong sequence, you know, down where the sailors fall into the ravine there. It's good stuff, man. Oh, God, never get never get tired of it. And that wonderful shot where the scorpion, I forget if he's coming under the train trestle and he grabs that one guy who's running away. You know, I watched that a thousand times and it just still affects you the same way. It's like you're a kid again watching it for the first time. Sure. It's a really, really underrated film. I, I wish more people were aware of it. So you know, it's, it's up to people like you and me to talk about it. Most terrifying news of all. At nightfall, monstrous animals crawl out of crater of volcano. Great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno. Vast area devastated by appalling new horror. A creature named the Black Scorpion by panic-stricken people of San Lorenzo. Entire population prays for deliverance. 
For miles around, cowboys came upon one dead steer after another. One of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the Maricopa, having lost family or friends to something absolutely unknown. We could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of these leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the scorpions. The black scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. achieved before by any science fiction picture. Thousands in the cast. With the music, is your background in music? You talk about knowing these people and meeting these composers and all that. How, how did you even become aware of film scores? No, I didn't have a background in music. I, I liked it, and but I wasn't one of these film score nuts where, you know, a lot of my friends, they'll talk about, oh, the first time they heard Bernard Herrmann, you know, when they were 11 years old, it's like, God, I was playing basketball and looking at girls. Uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really fall in love with film music until my college days and even kind of after my college days. But I always loved soundtracks. I love music of all kinds. You know, I love pop and rock and folk and vocal and all that stuff. But I also liked soundtracks. And I happened to meet a woman. UCLA was having a class on uh, meet the film composer. It was, it was not like a real class. It was like a extension class at night. And Richard Kraft, who ended up running Verez Saraband and then becoming a big, you know, the biggest film music agent in town, he had a lot of friends who were composers. And he would have a composer each week. And I think there were about maybe 25, 30 people in the class. And they would just listen to the composer talk, and then they would ask questions. And it was kind of a, a chance to meet your heroes or to learn something about the industry. So they had Albert Glasser there. I think that's where I first met Tony Thomas, the producer. He had some wonderful people there. But Ernest Gold, who who wrote uh, Exodus and Mad, 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 Mad World and Inherit the Wind and all that great stuff, he was there one night. And his private student, whose name was Kathleen Maine, she joined the class basically to learn more about it because she was studying film music, but that was her teacher. And we ended up sitting next to each other and ended up falling in love. And she's a classical composer. So I found myself married to this very, very talented composer. And I had this love for monster movies and she didn't really care about that kind of stuff. She liked White Christmas and Holiday Inn and things like that, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope movies. But you're not going to be able to sell them. So based on my love of monsters and her knowledge of music, we kind of thought, well, let's see if we can work together. And that's kind of how it started. So does she like the monster movies now? She grew to like them some, you know, yeah, she likes them. She, I don't think she had ever watched them, you know, except as a kid and she was scared to death. But I remember when she was orchestrating the music for Tarantula and she was watching the movie over and over and over and over to try to hear things in the recording that she couldn't see on the sketches of the music. And one night, 
she just woke up screaming because she dreamt that there were tarantulas in, in her bed. She watches these movies differently than like monster kids do. Like she actually believes them. <laughs> well, better, better to wake up screaming, thinking there's tarantulas in your bed than say like John Agar in your bed or something, I suppose, right? Exactly. <laughs> Although I don't know. He, he was a, such a sweet. Did you ever meet him? I never had an opportunity, but I've heard nobody say anything negative about him. Just that he was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Yeah, what a what a sweetheart. My my friend Joyce Meadows, who her first big movie was big. Anyway, her first movie was Brain from Planet Aris, and she ended up uh starring in a couple of westerns with him as well, uh Frontier Gun and I forget the other one, and she just adored him. And I'm helping uh, actress Francine York uh write her memoirs and she worked with John in um Curse of the Swamp Creature. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. And she loved him, too. I mean, he was just such a sweet, kind guy. He had a rough life. You know, marrying America's sweetheart, Shirley Temple, was tough. I bet. Yeah. But I met him a few times. And, you know, he was very frail because he smoked all the time. And he had emphysema and everything. But, God, there, his eyes had so much joy in them. He was a real – I think he wasn't a great actor. But when you saw him in films like Tarantula and Revenge of the Creature and all that stuff – that likability would come out of him. And that, that was who John was, I think. You know, there's a lot of people who, they're not really great actors. They just are themselves on screen. And I think that's who he was. He has a, a charisma that you just want to hang out with the guy. Well, whether you're going to you know put on a cowboy hat and go ride the range or go fight a monster, you just want to hang out with him. And I love watching his films. He's one of my favorites. I mean, his genre work, his non-genre work, well, I guess it's still a genre work if it's Western, but you know, all of those films, I just love watching them in them. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm with you on that. It's like if, if I had a choice to watch some, you know, brand new, whatever, 70 millimeter blockbuster of today or some John Agar movie that I've never seen before, I'll probably choose the John Agar movie. Yeah. Yeah, I will uh, seek out John Agar films that... <laughs> I haven't seen yet, even if he's only in the movie for like a scene or two. You know, with, with the exception possibly being Curse of the Swamp Creature. Yeah, I have to admit, I have that in my collection, and I've watched it a few times <laughs> because of him. Because of him. But he seems to elevate these movies. Mm -hmm. And this nope. can turn into the John Agar Appreciation Hour, you know? <laughs> I just love his work. I'm trying to think. He, he was in, I think he was in, uh, speaking of Ronald Stein, what's the one about, oh, goodness, it's a one one word title. Oh, I'll have to find out later. A really, really sweet movie. I think it was like an orphan boy. And I, I got it from some, I don't know, somebody in Belgium had a copy or something. And I watched it. It was real. It was John and Julie Adams, who's a friend. And nobody's like ever seen the picture. And it's, it's just so wonderful. I have seen the picture. I asked her about it at a monster bash when I met her a few years ago. It's called Raimi. There you go. That's it. Raimi. And it's, and I was going to ask you about that actually because. About the fish, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a little boy who's like grown up. He's he's got uh, no father, and John, Julie Adams a single mother, and John Agar's the fisherman on the wharf, and kind of got a thing for her, that sort of thing. I discovered that movie quite by accident because I found a, a movie poster for it for sale on eBay, and I'm like, what? What is this? It's like favorite actress and favorite actor of these films in a movie together. I've never heard of it. So I did some digging, and I found a guy in Canada who was selling it, probably not legally. Uh, and he was running some sort of Nickelodeon fan site, uh, the 
TV channel, Nickelodeon for Kids fan site, but he had like one section where he's selling the DVD. I'm like, well, I, I can't find it anywhere else. I want to see this film. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen it, and it's adorable. It is. It's a really sweet, sweet picture, and it's too bad nobody – I think I looked up the chain of title at one point, copyright stuff, and it's – no, I don't think anybody knows who who owns the thing, or and if they did, you know, there, there's no market for something like this where they would recoup their money. Your your copy is probably you know from the same master that mine is, and it's pretty chewed up in spots. It is, it is. I seem to remember the opening being kind of rough with some edits and everything, but what a sweet picture! And you know, if you can figure out who had the rights to it, you probably have to open up a whole different can of worms because isn't the theme song sung by Jerry Lewis? Yeah, he sing sings it. Ronald Stein did the the music, but Jerry Lewis sung it, so I don't know if there'd be any rights involved with that as well and it would depend on original contracts and the odds of anyone even knowing where those are you know that's why a lot of things don't get released either musically or also films where when there isn't a chain of title meaning showing how somebody who owned it sold it to somebody else then people don't want to get involved in that because there's a gap in there and they don't know if let's say in that gap there's somebody really important and they know they own that and you put the thing out they could sue you so, you know, you generally want a very clear chain of titles so you know, okay, it went from A to B to C to D, and D is giving me the right to put it out. But if you're missing C, you don't really know if B got it to D legally or whatever, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense to me. Another thing that I can geek out about for hours is entertainment law, public domain, copyright searching. I've done some work for a film a library catalog group here in Oregon over the years, and I've learned a lot about you know copyright search, who owns what. And it's just fascinating to me to track this stuff down. And you do kind of run into that gray area where – you know, maybe Universal had something to do with it or Paramount or whoever, but then it went to somebody else and then a bank got a hold of it with 17 other titles. And then what happened here and there? It's just, I wish it were easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to do that. A lot. I've always do that a lot too. And I represented other composers, including, as I said, Ronald Stein in dealing with that stuff. And it, it's such a nightmare. I'll tell you a funny story. One time I was looking into some legality. I think, I think it was regarding Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is a terrible thing to, to put out there in public. And I had some contentions of ownership that Universal wasn't sure were accurate or not. So the person I was speaking to in copyright said, well, let me, let me go check the files and I'll get back to you. It may, well, it may not have been Creature. It might have been Incredible Shrinking Man. I, I don't really recall exact. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, no, I think it was Creature. So um, about a few days later, I get a call from copyright. And he said, well, did you find the agreements that you were looking for? And she said, well, she said, this is off the record. So since it's off the record, I'll... <laughs> I'll put it in a podcast. Good Lord. And she said, yeah, I, I looked at the file. I opened up the folder for, for that year. And there was a note in there that said files destroyed by flood of 19, something like 1969. Now, I assume by flood, they meant like the water system in the studio or something. I don't know, bleaked and went through. But apparently it took away all the paperwork, which doesn't mean they don't have copies somewhere else, you know. So I don't want to say that you can do something from Universal and nobody can come after you. That's not true. But there was a note in the file cabinet that referred to the flood of like 1969 or something. Wow. Yeah, it's (laughs) just to try to track these things down. I mean, not only do you have companies that have gone out of business or somebody passed away without doing whatever. You have natural disasters. You have water damage. You have fires. Just tracking this material down, and that's why I'm so appreciative of what you've done. 
with your company because man, without it, I don't think I'd ever have. You, know, you mentioned the brain from Planet Arrow, so I would never have the music for that on my iPod. <laughs> I, I, I don't think anybody in their right mind would have had that if it were not for for me. And it just came from my love of well, it came from a couple of things. It was my love of the of the movie. It's always been a favorite. And then when I became friends with Joyce Meadows, it's like that became my goal. I had to find that. I've been looking for it for a long time. I, I had the scores, but the thought of re-recording Brain from Planet Aris was not, you know, because that's not a, the kind of film that's going to make people really want to go out and spend their money. So it was much easier to find the original tracks. But yeah, knowing Joyce, I just had to do that. And uh, I'm very happy because it's, you know, it's just like you expect it to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, you hear the music and go, yep, yeah, that, that's it. Yep. Yeah. It's not just genre or the monster movie music that you've been putting out. It seems like lately there's been more uh, – there's Hellgate. There's some Western scores that you've put out there. You've put out the score for the Doll Squad. So you've really started to pick some of this other more – I don't want to say obscure because I think people know the Doll Squad or at least know what the Doll Squad is if they've seen the movie or not. It, it just seems like you've been able to branch out and grab some of these more cult-like or, or – lesser known scores and put out that no studio would ever do. I was going after things that my life were involved with at the time. This was when I started working with Francine on her book. And I was also friends with the composer, Nicholas Karras. And I had put out some music for him for She Demons and uh, Missile to the Moon and Frankenstein's Daughter and all that. So I thought, okay, this will be fun for Francine uh, since I have to talk about the movie anyway. And I, uh, she had put me in touch with Ted Michaels. So I kind of knew him. So I thought, okay, you know, the stars have aligned, so we'll put it out and see what happens. It's a fun score. I mean, oh, it is. Yeah, but you know, convincing people that they should buy the score from the Doll Squad is 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 a lot different than Creature from the Black Lagoon. But you know, I'm glad it's out there, and I wish Nick had had lived long enough to see it. But uh, you know, that was one of the real joys of doing the music originally, and it's one reason I kind of have backed away from it a little bit and gotten back into writing is. When the composers were alive and, you know, their children now are dealing with grandchildren in a lot of cases, it was really fun. You know, when you would bring down, when we did recordings of some of Heinz Rehmheld's music uh, or something like that, and you bring it down to the daughters of Heinz Rehmheld, who are in their 70s and 80s. And you know, it's the first time they heard any of their father's film music or something. And you see the look on their face. It's, it's really kind of magical. And and the joy that we got from that and the composers, that's better than all the sales from all the customers. Not that, you know, we don't want the sales from the customers, but when you saw Irving Gertz listening to the Alligator people, you know, this grade C movie that he did ages ago, and somebody actually recorded it, and it's a really good recording of it. He's kind of bobbing his head to the music. It just makes it all worth it. And they're, and they're all gone now. You don't get that anymore. It's unfortunate. I mean, I love these movies so much, but to have the connections to the people who are involved is getting harder and harder. You mentioned having a party through today with uh, you know, running into Sarah Karloff and, and them. I mean, that's that's the closest I'm ever going to get to any of these people is meeting a child or somebody at an event like that. And the children are passing away, and we're passing away. That's another reason why I haven't done releases in a couple of years is the monster kids are disappearing. And the market is is getting smaller. And you see the labels putting out music from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, deluxe set. Some of that's great music. It's not what I grew up with, so it doesn't have that same appeal. 
you know, I don't like putting out music just because I think it's going to sell. I put out music because for some reason it's important to me or I think it needs to be out there. And I guess I don't feel that way about, you know, stuff from the 80s or 90s. Well, if it doesn't get out there from me, somebody else is going to do it. That target market is still alive and well and buying stuff. Well, that's depressing. Um, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but let's, let's bring this to something. But, but it's, it's funny, you know, if you, if you go to the Monster Kid board – and it used to be in the obituary section, you know, where they talk about stars who died. Well, now like half of the obituaries are people who were on the board. Yeah, I, I have seen that quite a bit. And just you go to Monster Bash and you see the uh, the obituary reel they do at the end. And they start including longtime attendees of the Monster Bash, not just guests. And it, it is a shrinking, I don't know, demographic. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things that I try to do with my podcast. I know there are other podcasters and writers out there that are trying to bring or continue the Monster Kid tradition. And you know, you are starting to write more. You said, and I wanted to talk about the books. Uh-huh. You and I share a rondo. Well, we don't share the same rondo, but we are members of what? What? What year was it? Was it 2014 that we won, or 2015? Uh, Chronicles. I think it was. Let's see. Was it? Was it, I don't remember. It took like 10 months for my Rondo to arrive in the mail, so I, I lost track. Did well, we're in the same Rondo class. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. And The Creature Chronicles, Exploring the Black Lagoon Trilogy, you are a co-writer uh, of that with Tom Weaver and Steve Cronenberg. What a phenomenal end-all, be-all book of The Creature from the Black Lagoon and the, the media around it. I'm sure you came at it. Or came to the project because of your background with the music, but I'm just talking to you now and knowing that you've got a friendship with Julie Adams. You love that movie, right? Oh, of, of course, you know. And but but I do want to preface this by saying the co and co writer. If writer is in like a twelve point font, the co should be in a two point font. That's Tom Weaver's book. Originally, the way the book started was he told me he was writing a, a book. It was going to be called Universal Terrors. And it was like the Universal Horrors book that was done like 30 years ago, or whatever. But where those covered Universal's movies from the 40s, this would cover the ones about 20 movies from the 50s. So he asked me if I'd want to write something about the music for each of the pictures. And I said, well, how much do you want me to write? And he said, well, can you do like 200 words? And I said, yeah, I, you know, as you know, from reading, if you've read my liner notes, I, yeah, I'm, I, I can have a sentence with 200 words and it doesn't even have semicolons in it. I mean, I could be, I could be rather verbose. So I decided, okay, let me take a film that nobody's ever thought about in terms of music and see what I can do on it. So I think I, I did Cult of the Cobra from 1955 and when I got done with it, I think it was about 6,000 words long. So I sent it to Tom and I said, you're going to need to trim this a bit. And he wrote back and said, can you do this on each of the films? And I thought, stupidly, sure. <laughs> That's how it started. And then what happened was, I forget who the author was, but they put out this unauthorized, or I don't want to say unauthorized. It was a book that they had borrowed from other writers without getting permission for it. And it was also released by McFarland. And the advanced sales on it were apparently really, really good for McFarland. It would be one of their best-selling books. But it got caught right after it came out, and the book was pulled. So there, I think just a few copies went out there, and every once in a while you see one for sale for a few hundred dollars. I saw one once. And even some of my writing was quoted in the book. And even though they gave me a footnote 
they, they didn't ask permission, and you should do that. But apparently, the author borrowed a lot of the book from Tom Weaver and other people. So when McFarland had to kill the book for legal reasons, they wanted a creature book. So Tom called me up and said, you know, Universal Terrors that we're working on, well, it's now two books. They want to pull out the three creature chapters and make a book around them. I don't want to go into how much work it was because from a writing standpoint, because Universal reused music and they were the same composers in all 20 of these movies, it wasn't as simple as me just taking out the Creature from the Black Lagoon chapter, Revenge of the Creature and Creature Walks Among Us and saying, okay, there they are. I had to rewrite everything because there were things about Creature mentioned in The Incredible Shrinking Man and the Monolith Monsters and the Deadly Mantis, et cetera, et cetera. So after the Creature Chronicles came out with all that rewriting, and I'm working on the remaining Universal Terrors, which is 17 movies that don't have the Creature in it from the 1950s, Tom calls me up again or emails and says, McFarland doesn't want the book to be a thousand pages. So Universal Terrors is now going to be two books. Oh, no. And again, I had to go through all the stuff again, because now the thing that couldn't die has stuff pertaining to uh, an Audie Murphy Western, which is mentioned in Monster on the Campus. So anyway, so somehow we got Universal Terrors Volume 1 done. And that's coming out, I guess, you know, probably fairly early this year, two or 2017. And then I got to go back to Universal Terrors Part 2 and try to make sense of that. But that's kind of how these things came about. It was going to be one book, but Creature Chronicles ended up being 400 pages. Universal Terrors Volume 1 is about 500 pages. And I think Universal Terrors Volume 2 might be bigger than that because it has even more movies. I'm looking at the Amazon page listing for Universal Terrors 1951 to 1955 now, and it doesn't have a release date listed yet. It just says it's available for pre-order. I, I can't wait for this book. I can't either. I, I haven't seen it because I just, you know, I just did my own stuff. Tom Weaver, you know, he's like 90% responsible for everything else. And he's, you know, the best researcher and writer out there in these kind of genres. And Robert Kiss does all the information about the releases in different countries of the film, what they, what they were playing with, how they moved from this theater to that. They're just incredibly detailed stuff. And Steve Cronenberg does the synopses of the movies from, from his personal standpoint, his perspective. So I don't get to see any of that stuff until it comes out, which is kind of fun because then I can just skip over my stuff and read the other stuff. And it's, it's amazing. So I'm looking forward to this. And, and I love the cover too, of the universal terrors with the big spider shadow. I'm looking at it right now. I was going to ask you about that because the cover for the creature chronicles is clearly modeled after some of the movie posters from that era. But this is more just, you know, a big old spider here, which obviously Tarantula is going to be in this book. So, of course, mm -hmm. it makes sense. I, I think it's a great cover. I love the covers, the kind of deserty colors on the on the book. So, so there you go. So you'll be looking forward to the the book as much as as much as I will. I definitely am. It, it, would it be a spoiler to ask you which eight movies are going to be in this book? In this book, no, not at all. Because all you have to do, it says nineteen fifty one to nineteen fifty five. So all you have to do is, you know, go to the IMDb and look up Universal, but it's The Strange Door, The Black Castle, It Came From Outer Space, Creature from the Black Lagoon is in there, but what we did both musically and I think Tom did is we did kind of reduced versions since you've already got the information in the Creature Chronicles, and 
we tried to offer some different stuff because people who didn't buy Creature Chronicles, they want to see something about Creature from the Black Lagoon and Revenge of the Creature, which is also in there. But they're greatly reduced because most people already have the other book. So after um, those, we also so we got The Strange Door of the Black Castle, it Came from Outer Space, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, This Island Earth, Cult of the Cobra, and Tarantula. And Universal Terrors Volume 2, uh, which is fun because, at least musically, there, there hasn't been a lot written about these. It's The Creature Walks Among Us, The Mole People, The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Deadly Mantis, The Land Unknown, The Monolith Monsters, The Thing That Couldn't Die, Monster on the Campus, Curse of the Undead, and The Leech Woman. Wow. The yeah. Greatest hits of – well, it makes sense. It's Universal. So, of course, it's the greatest hits of 1950s monster movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Universal is known for the gothic horror and the Dracula and the Frankensteins, but man, their sci-fi monsters from the 50s are just as iconic sometimes, I feel like. You know, Creature, of course, but you know, I, j- I just talked about Monster on the Campus with somebody not too long ago here on the show, and, and I adore that movie. And these these films are so unique. They take the best elements of the 1930s and 40s Universal and add that atomic fear and add what's going on in the 50s. into It's just fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as mentioned, a, lo- a, a goodly portion of it, and I think that's why Tom gave me so much space in these books, is the music. Because other than The Strange Door and The Black Castle, which reused music from the 40s, basically, and some really early 50s stuff, all the other music is related, because it was Henry Mancini and Herman Stein and Irving Gertz and Hans Salter and a little bit of Heinz Reimheld and William Lava, and that music runs through all these pictures. So it kind of helps to make them part of the same group there. They have a sound that the forties do not monster movies do not have, you know, something that binds them together as you hear, especially since they were borrowing music occasionally, you know, music from it came from outer space would appear in the deadly mantis and things like that is they're, they're all related. The, the attachments are, they're like tentacles and they all grab onto each other there. <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of the music in Tarantula came from Westerns, and they were all filmed out in the same desert, so, you know, it worked perfectly. It's not just the sound of monsters, it's the sound of the desert. Yeah, the Tarantula, there are a lot of classic American Western themes or feels, or feels, feelings, in that film. Yeah. It, it really could be a Western, just happens to have a big spider that shows up. Yeah, well, I used to do a, something at, at bookstores and things uh, about film music, and it was called What is Monster Music? And I would show clips, and one of them is the main title from Tarantula. You know, it's bum, 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 bum. And people, you know, I say, doesn't that sound like monster music? Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's giant Tarantula music. And then I would play them where the music originally came from, you know, which was a Western. And they hear it in the original context, and they go, oh, yeah, that's Western music. Because, you know, your brain is playing a trick on you and it's making an association between the music and the visual you see. But, you know, if you were a Western fan and you grew up hearing the music for the first time on the Westerns, it would kind of be strange to you to see it in the sci-fi context. Because, you know, that connection has already been established in your brain. But since we weren't watching the Westerns, we were watching the monster music, we assume it's monster music. And then when we see it later... You know, and it's it's in some sort of exotic adventure or it's in a Western or it's in a soap opera. We go, whoa, what is creature music doing here? Well, it's not creature music doing there. It was Western music being put into creature. I will watch a movie and if I hear music from another film or another source in another movie or TV show or something like that, 
my brain immediately starts having this this disconnect. Like, wait a minute, that's not from... And it's even worse now with like movie trailers these days where they'll pull music from a movie from 10 years ago. Uh, I, I still... It's kind of outside of the wheelhouse of Monster Kid Radio, but I still chuckle that the first trailers for the Dan Aykroyd movie, The Coneheads, had music from Bram Stoker's Dracula in it. And it's just <laughs> like, what? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I guess they liked it. And sometimes they're tracking, you know, they're using temporary music in there uh, and they get so used to it. You know, they just grab something to throw in there. But after editing and screening so many times, they just get so used to the music being there that even having something original written for it doesn't seem right. So they end up leaving the the library music in there. I I could see that, or I suppose more appropriately, I could hear that. So we've got Universal Terrors coming, uh, the first book. The second book hasn't even made a blip on the Amazon radar yet, but I'll be watching for it. Before we started recording, you mentioned something about DVD commentaries. Is that something you're doing more and more of now? Well, it's something that Tom Weaver's trying to get me do more and more of, but it's a lot of work and, you know, it doesn't pay. And I I kind of did it for some of the films because he, he has me doing the music part on it. And I did it for certain films where I knew I knew more about it than anybody else. And so I didn't want somebody to kind of muck it up. But lately I've been doing some where I don't know anything about the music. And, and sometimes I, I'm not really that familiar with the pictures. So then I, then it's a lot of work because I have to sit there and analyze it and check on the history of the movie and try to understand the music. And a lot of times you're not even sure who wrote the music. You know, there may be a credit there, but you listen to it and you realize, no, I don't think so. You know, like you start hearing things that don't sound like they belong. So then you try to get cue sheets to figure out who might have written the music. It's just a lot of work. You know, I kind of turned down half of the jobs that Tom offers me and the other half I do, but it's a lot of work. And, you know, I kind of do it when I think, well, it's important. But if I think somebody else can do a better job than me, which is probably most of the time, I'll just say, you know, no, I can't do it right now. Do you like doing them? I've never done a DVD commentary, but I would love to do one. Okay, next time I get a, an offer, I'll pass it on to you. Oh, okay. Okay. I appreciate that. That's on recording. <laughs> Hold them to it. <laughs> Well, I can't stand listening to my voice. I sound whiny. So I never listen to, to me, which I probably should to see if I'm doing a good job or not. But I just have to scan over it quickly to, to get to what Tom's saying and everything. <laughs> I think the reason Tom likes me to do this is, you know, if you've heard his commentaries, he's like a hockey announcer. He talks a thousand miles an hour. And it's a lot of information that he has to come up with to get on there. But he knows that if I'm going to talk about the music, whereas most people would maybe give one or two sentences to the music, I'll talk for like 16 minutes until people are asleep. So that's 16 minutes less that Tom has to cover. So I think he likes to have me on there because it makes his job a lot easier. <laughs> so is the the main passion then what's driving you right now? Is it the writing then, the books and such? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing all books in a hold. I did a, a humor book, a cartoon book last year. I did co-writing for some actors and actresses and editors, helping them with their books and doing the the stuff for Tom. And I'm writing a kid's story now about two stubborn Scotties because I have two stubborn Scottish terriers. So I'm just kind of all over the board right now. But it's it's a nice break from the music. And, you know, as something you mentioned earlier, it's a nice break from the legality stuff of it. I just, you know, that that stuff can wear you down after a while, dealing with all of the legal implications of releasing music or films, that kind of stuff that's 
copyrighted by other people. And it's nice taking a break from that and not having to deal with studio lawyers. Oh, I bet. I bet. I, I said earlier, I, I really enjoy, and like I said, I could geek out on this copyright thing, but once you hit a dead end or you start running into conflicting uh, statements or viewpoints regarding something, it can certainly be headache-making. So I totally understand needing to take a break from it. Oh, yeah. Or you're working on a project for a long time, and then all of a sudden somebody finds some little amendment to some sort of transfer of rights, and there's a sentence in there that nobody understands. They don't understand, does it favor this side or that side? And you just sit there and you just shake your head and go, I don't know. Yeah. You know. It's amazing how many contracts were written that are that are messy. That's that's the thing. <laughs> totally. You know? And if if I if I had a dollar for every time a lawyer said to me, Well, if I had drawn up the contract, I wouldn't have written it like that, you know, the, the proverbial I could I could retire. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things we ran into with the group that I was working with is we, we did European films. So you would have all these contracts written in Spanish or Italian, and then trying to translate that and make sure that every party agrees on the translation. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that can be fun. And the copyright laws over in Europe, you know, from one country to the next, it's just, oh, my God, I don't want to think. See, I'm getting a headache already. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's talk about your children's book. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. That'll give me a headache, too, because I hit, a, I hit a, a dead end in the plot. I got to figure out how to rescue the Scotties. Oh, no. Well, I'm, I'm looking up your name on Amazon. I'm only seeing the, the Creature Chronicles, the, the monster books, you know, those, the books that you've done with Tom for Scripts from the Crypt. You mentioned a humor book, though. I thought I saw it on Facebook or I'm sorry, on Amazon at one point. Yeah, I, I can't figure out why searches sometimes work and sometimes they don't. So, uh, What is it called? It's a book on snowmen, and it's called Frosty's Family. And my name is up there, so I don't know why it doesn't show up on a search. And I also worked on a couple of other books Tom did for oh – God, I can't remember the who's the publisher. You know, they did the, the film script series. They did uh, – uh, Bear Manor, wasn't it? Bear Manor Media? Yeah. They did Bride of the Monster and uh, – what's that awful – Well, I see – Bride of the Gorilla and Indestructible Man come up under your name. They do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't worry too much about credits because I don't know. I just don't worry about the stuff. It's not like, you know, I'm gonna get famous or get some work because somebody sees I I, I wrote a chapter on the indestructible man. So <laughs> you know? hey, you're it, famous to me, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't worry about that kind of stuff. So Frosty's family, there it is. I'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes, you know, let, let other monster kids check it out. It's a very silly book. There's one monster related gag in there, and that's okay. it. Okay. Yeah. That's enough for me. Yeah, but but all the snowmen in there were named after um people I know. So there's a Julie for Julie Adams, there's a Barbara for Barbara Rush, and there's a Joyce for Joyce Meadows and a Colleen for Colleen Gray and all this kind of stuff. So so you can buy the book and look at the names and there's a Rex for Rex Reason and oh, all that nice. stuff. All right, well, I want to start winding down here, David, but you mentioned Julie Adams. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. You know, I, I love what you do. I love the CDs and the books that you've brought to me, but I am so insanely jealous because you've spent more time with Julie than I ever will. I always wanted to meet her, and our paths just never crossed. Like when when I came out with the the creature, when we came out with the creature CD, like around two thousand or whatever, uh, she was being interviewed for the DVD commentary, the Back to the Black Lagoon documentary that was sold with the DVD, and I was too. And she was like recording at, at noon, and I was at two. 
And then we were doing something else and da, da, da. so we just kept missing each other. And she didn't miss me because she didn't know who the hell I was. But I definitely wanted to meet her because I had mutual friends and they told me how wonderful she was. So I just kind of had a feeling that, that we would hit it off or I was hoping we would. I, w- I was dealing with the acquisition of Herman Stein's music catalog and it was a long legal battle. It was it was one of the more difficult times of my life. It went on for, for years and it was very expensive and very traumatic and just wore me out. And I was so sick of the music business. I didn't put anything out for a few years. It just, this love of mine turned into just something I wanted nothing to do with. It was just horrible. So I was doing a convention selling our CDs and I didn't really want to go because uh, I just wanted nothing to do with the music business. And I walked into the convention hall, I forget where it was, and Julie was sitting there. Uh, getting ready for it was like an hour before it was going to start the first day and i had been thinking of the music that i owned in terms of film music and it was music owned by universal and this kind of stuff and everything and it wasn't really owned by universal they were just claiming that they owned it and they don't and i saw her sitting there and just into my brain i thought i don't own music from universal movies i own julie adams music And I thought of like some of the love themes that had been written that were written for her. And I walked up to her and said, I own Julie Adams music. And she looked at me like, are you crazy? And I talked to her and she smiled and and that was it. The other thing I said right after that, her first husband was Leonard Stern, who, you know, get smart and everything. And he and he had a publishing company, a book company called Price Stern Sloan. He was one of the owners of that. And I did some some writing for them. And I worked for them just for a short time. And let's just say things didn't go well. And she was married to him for about two years. And let's just say things didn't go well. So right after I mentioned that I own Julie Adams, I said, Julie, you and I have something in common. She said, what's that? And I said, we both had very short, unpleasant relationships with Leonard Stern. (laughs) And she she didn't even understand it, but she laughed hysterically. And from that point on, we were bonded. <laughs> she's she's one of the funniest people I've ever known. She's we just connect our sense of humors. You know, we'll be at some event and everyone's talking about typical kind of stuff in Hollywood movies. And she and I are just being stupid to each other. You know, I just have that. You, you have certain people you have a connection with. And that I've always had a connection with Julie and vice versa. And she's as nice as anybody you're ever going to meet in your entire life. Oh, yeah. I've I've met her a couple of times uh, at a Monster Bash. And then she actually came out to Oregon for a convention. Was it last, this past year or the year before? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And just she is a sweetheart. And she's great to chat with and warm and welcoming. I'm kind of in love with her, even though my wife's in the other room. Um, you know, she, she's just great. And the funny thing about her is... She's, as I said, she's, I mean, she's a brilliant lady. Very, very, very smart. You, you look at her bookshelves and she's read every one of the thousands of books up there and everything, but she is so funny. And I'm good friends with her son, Mitch Danton. You know, Ray Danton was Julie's second husband and the father of uh, two sons. And, and Mitch is I, a great guy too. Yeah. Mitch is, Mitch is a very dear friend. And I helped co-write his book called, uh, Cutting It in Hollywood because he's oh, a, okay. Emmy, yeah, he's an Emmy award winning editor, a real talented guy. And I remember when I first started to get to know Mitch and I said, 
God, your mom is hysterical. And he said, is she? And it's like, she doesn't show that part. But I, I think she shows that with me because, you know, I started out as a humor writer. But she's so, so clever. It isn't funny. But she just, you know, generally just kind of sits back there and she's kind of quiet. And But what a, a special lady. And, and you can see why, you know, millions of baby boomers fell in love with her. Not, of course, the bathing suit and the body and all that. But there's just, there's that face. My goodness. <laughs> you know? And you're allowed, even if you're married, you're allowed to be in love with Julie Adams. And you tell your wife I said that. Oh, yeah? Oh, hey, hon. He just said it's okay if I'm in love with Julie Adams. I'm allowed. I've given up anyway. She said she's given up anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you weren't in love with her, you wouldn't be a real man. Oh, is that how it is? Okay. How it is. I'll tell her you said that when I'm in another room. Okay. Uh, <laughs> David, I, I want to end on a high note. So I think Julie Adams is a great way to go out here. Uh, are you going to see her again anytime soon? Because if you are, please tell her I said hi. I will. I will definitely do that. I saw her for her 90th birthday, which was, uh, I think, about two and a half, three weeks ago at Mitch's house. And she's just a sweetheart. And and I thought, well, what do you get for somebody who's, you know, got it all and everything? I said, well, get her. Everyone said, get her flowers. So I show up at the door with a real pretty pot of flowers. And I'm looking at all the other guests arriving. Everybody had a pot of flowers. It looked like the, the set of an Amazon movie inside the house there. Somehow that's appropriate though, right? Yeah, 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 it was. Um, I think I got a, I'll send you a picture that I, I took of her there. And I'll, you know, I'll send you this, this other photo. She and I did a, we, a convention back in Pennsylvania. What's the one in Pennsylvania? Monster Bash. Yeah. And that's Monster Bash. We couldn't get a plane flight home until later in the day. So the last day we left uh, and we took a drive in, in Northwest of Pittsburgh and it's all green there. We went to, a, I think it was called Moraine State Park and I took a picture of her standing in front of this lake, kind of like the Black Lagoon. And she was having such a wonderful time because after all these fans, you know, are surrounding you all the time and all the noise. And we we're just out in, in the wilderness. And it was quiet. And she was out in all the greenery. And it is my favorite photo of her. You know, even though I took it, that's not why. It's just the setting was so beautiful. Just her being peaceful. That's what I think of when I think of her. It's just kind of out there in the greenery. You know the creature's out there somewhere. Well, David, I want to, again, thank you for being part of the show. Like I said, I've wanted to have you on for a while. And let's not wait so long um, <laughs> between conversations and getting oh, you back on the show. I'd love to have you back on. I'll maybe talk about a movie proper or something. The Black Scorpion I haven't talked about with anybody lately. Yeah, so. no, no. I'll be happy to talk about uh, any of those movies if I know anything about them. So now i got to go watch The Black Scorpion again. I want to watch it this after, or this weekend, too, so I think I will. It's one of those pictures, you know, like every two years, like Kronos and It the Terror from Beyond Space and Monster the Challenge the World, I will just watch it over and over and over and over. I don't, you never get tired of it. It's, it's comforting. There's just something about it. As opposed to Curse of the Swamp Creature, which like once every – it's like when when I was working on Francine's book and, and she said, what was that speech I gave, uh, you know, when I confront the monster? And she said, will you, will you look it up? I go, no, Francine, I don't want to watch it again. I really don't. Just write it down next time you see it. <laughs> anyway. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, now I kind of want to go watch that too. But I'll, if I do watch that, I'll watch Black Scorpion afterwards. You kind of go out on a high note. Exactly. Like a, it's a chaser. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, David. Again, thank you. Have a great time at your holiday party. And uh, if I don't talk to you again uh, by Facebook or whatever, please have a great holiday. I cannot tell you how long I've wanted to have David on the show. I've been kind of circling him on Facebook for a while. I'm so glad we made it happen. This recording did take place last month before the holidays. So 
David, if you're listening, I hope you had a great holiday party and that you're having an amazing 2017. And I meant it. I want you back on the show. And yeah, why don't we talk about the Black Scorpion? I think it'd be a blast. Listeners, if you're interested in the CDs, the music label, Monstrous Movie Music, go to mmmrecordings.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this, but this is where you can buy all the CDs. As of this recording, he's doing a sale right now. Don't know how long it's going to last. Get in there, get on that sale, and let them know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. He mentioned his books, so go to Amazon. Look up Universal Terrors, 1951 to 1955. It's right there. The Creature Chronicles, it's right there. And the humor book that he mentioned, Frosty's Family. Go look that up as well. Again, available on Amazon. An upheaval of nature tears loose a creature out of the nightmare of time. Spawned by an earthquake on the bed of the ocean, a reptilian, earth-shaking beast of the sea. The monster that challenged the world. My tank. My tank. What's wrong? Blake's tank is caught in the undergrowth. Died right in front of me. I couldn't help him. Go back. Talk sense. What's down there? I don't know. I never saw anything like it before. It's the size of a dinosaur, and ten times more terrifying. Hurling the horrors of the unknown at every living thing. Dr. Lee Cushing, welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
South Seas paradise, where sensuous maidens offer themselves in ritual sacrifice to his brute embrace. Godzilla has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force. While Kong is a thinking animal. His brain is considerably larger. About ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision, shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm not just talking about here in the U.S., but even up in Canada, you need to check out shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. This is Chris McMillan's site. Chris is a dear friend of the show. He was on episode number one. He's been part of the Monster Kid Radio. You know, I'm going to call him family from the very beginning and even before, technically. Because of Chris's site, because of the Shadow Over Portland, I found out that a local movie theater here in town, the Academy Theater, is bringing in some classic science fiction films. And, well, it's been a while since we've done a Monster Kid Radio crash, so let's crash the thing from another world. The Thing from Another World. This is the spot where it was first seen, and these are the first people who saw the thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat mewing. Captain, it was awful. If you could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. Here's the thing. This is a 35 millimeter print. You can't beat that. There's a texture. There's something about seeing actual film. And I can't wait to get to the Academy Theater to see it. So, Saturday... January 7th, 2.35 p.m. That's showtime. It is showing again in the evening, but to make the Monster Kid Radio crash with everybody's real-life day job schedules, we're doing the 2.35 p.m. screening 
and I would love to see you there. If you are on Facebook, you might have seen me started to post about this event already, but I want to put it out there on the podcast to anybody who's in the area, or if you're coming to the area for any reason, I'd love to see you Saturday afternoon to see this movie. So what is a Monster Kid Radio Crash? Well, I'm going to bring my portable recorder. I've got a Zoom H2 that I take with me to a lot of these different events. And either before the movie or after the movie, or maybe even both, I'm going to pull out the recorder. We're going to record a little bit for a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. A Monster Kid Radio Crash, you know, it's not a quote-unquote official event hosted by, well, the theater that we're crashing, the Academy Theater. They're a great theater, but they're not really involved in the crash. We're just a group of fans and friends getting together to celebrate the thing from another world, which, if you go all the way back to episode number one of Monster Kid Radio, you'll find out that this movie is in Chris McMillan's top three classic monster movies. And with good reason. It's darn good, and I can't wait to see it, and I hope to see you guys and gals there. If you can't make the crash, but you still want to see the movie, it is playing at the Academy from January 6th through the 12th. The rest of the month, they're also doing classic science fiction films. January 13th through the 19th, they're doing the original The Blob. From January 20th to January 26th, 35mm print of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And then from January 27th through February 2nd, they're doing Them. I'd like to squeeze in at least one more of these as an official, well, official for the podcast, unofficial for the Academy, but an official Monster Kid Radio crash. But even if I can't make that happen, I'd still love to get out there. If you're going to be in the area and you want to check out any of these movies, man, let them know you heard about them here on the show. AcademyTheaterPDX.com is where you're going to find everything you need to know about the Academy. So go check that out. Now, that's not the only movie I'm seeing this weekend. I'm going to go down to the Hollywood Theater, which which is one of my favorite movie theaters here in town. HollywoodTheater.org. And unlike the Academy, the Hollywood spells theater with R-E at the end. So it's HollywoodTheater.org. Go check them out. And you click on Coming Soon. And you're going to see that on Sunday, January 8th, they're playing an Ultraman double feature. Now, I know the more recent Ultraman films and franchise is a little outside of the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, but the bottom line is it's my podcast, and I love Ultraman, and I'm going to be there. I can't wait to see two Ultraman movies on the big screen. These are dubbed, but I don't care. It's going to be a blast. Ultraman X the movie and Ultraman Ginga S the movie. It's going to be a treat. I hope to see you there if you're in the area and you're interested in anything Ultraman. Also at the Hollywood, check it out on Tuesday, January 17th. They're bringing in the Dick Miller film, A Bucket of Blood. Don't know if I'm going to be able to make that one, but, you know, if you're interested, that's where you can see it. The artist. The poet. The figure model who loves to show it. Suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying in a bucket of blood. No, you're gonna shoot me! Don't shoot! Come to the land of living dreams, where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. 
Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I, I want to get married. To you. And as always, if you do go, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio and The Shadow Over Portland. Because without The Shadow Over Portland, I don't know if I would have found out about some of these screenings. So I owe you, Chris. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank David for being part of the show this week. And I'm going to say it again. I'm serious. You, me, the Black Scorpion. It is on. I want to thank you guys and gals for supporting the show. This is the first episode of 2017 and I have some ideas. I have some plans, things that I want to do this year. Some of these things involve me getting a little bit more organized and you know what? I could kind of use a little bit of help. So you know, if you feel like you've got a few extra minutes that you can spend a week helping me out with Monster Kid Radio, drop me a line. My email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com it's not a paid position. It's not an internship. I wouldn't even say it's volunteer. I mean, it's. I'm just asking for a little bit of help with a few things. Uh, but yeah, drop me a line if that's something that you think you might be interested in doing. You know, uh, I could just use all the help that I can get. And I could use as many honest reviews in the iTunes store. A lot of you have done this already. But if you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us an honest review in the iTunes store. The more, the merrier. The higher our rankings, the higher iTunes and Apple does something. Also, if you're a Facebook user, please consider liking the Monster Kid Radio page. Again, the higher the likes, the something Mark Zuckerberg something happens. Also, we have a Facebook group where you can join the group, get involved with conversations with listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. Now, this is all at our website at monsterkidradio.net. Links to our group, our page, our email address. I'll mention it again. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail. You can call in and leave us a message at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, this is a Google voicemail, which means it's got a hard three-minute limit. So if you have more than three minutes worth of stuff to say, just call more than once and I'll stitch the emails together or create your own audio file and email it to me. Again, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. We also have a link to our official Monster Kid Radio e-newsletter. You can subscribe. We call it the Monster Kid Radio Gazette. I'm going to start trying to put that back out again on a more regular basis this year. And it's just more monster stuff in your email box. We are also on Patreon, which means you can help support the show financially a little bit and help us keep the monster machines running here at Monster Kid Radio Central. Is that what I call it these days? Monster Kid Radio Headquarters? The belly of the beast. Oh. Whatever. I mean, it costs a few bucks to keep the website going and podcast hosting and your support on Patreon helps make all of that happen. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I mentioned this in last week's episode. You can now click on where it says MKR movie list. This is a spreadsheet showing every episode of Monster Kid Radio that covered a movie and what movie was covered in that episode. I've received some comments, some requests from people wanting to know what movies we've talked about here on the show. Well, there's your link so you can find out. At the very beginning of this episode, I said I wanted to do something new, bring in a new voice, and I plan on doing that a lot this year, but I've got some returning voices lined up as well. Next week, in episode 302, we are being joined by the monster movie kid, Rich Chamberlain. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen. Races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making... Carnival of Souls. This is the 
shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the carnival of souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the carnival of souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. In the links section of our website, you can find a link to Monster Movie Kid. Spoiler, it's monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. But Rich has got some new things happening this year as well. He started a new website called the Kansas City Cinephile. It's at kccinephile.com. Check that out. You can also check out Rich on a podcast of his very own. Now, he's been on this show. He contributes to Dread Media. But he and Jeff Owens, who's also part of the Monster Kid Radio community, started the Classic Horrors Club podcast. There's a link to it at kccinephile.com. You can hear the Classic Horrors Club over at SoundCloud, or if you want to subscribe through iTunes, well, you can only do that if you subscribe to the Phantom Podcast Network, which means you're going to get a whole bunch of other shows as well. But if you want to check it out by itself, go over to SoundCloud. In their first episode, they talk about the 1976 King Kong, because it's the 40th anniversary of that movie. We talked about it here on Monster Kid Radio. They're talking about it at Classic Horse Club. Everybody wants to be part of the King Kong conversation. So go check out what Rich and Jeff have to say about the movie. And then come back here because Rich will be here to talk about Carnival of Souls. I've prattled on long enough. It's time to get this show out there. Again, thank you for supporting Monster Kid Radio and being along for the ride. Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All the original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license, except the song Black Cat that belongs to the band Ode Cologne. It's on their album Dracula's Dream. You can find the album on Bandcamp at odicolone.bandcamp.com. That's O-D-I-C-O-L-O-N.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. I'm Derek M. Cook, and I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Boo. <laughs>